regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, welcome to a new interview with Datacast, and today I had the pleasure to speak with Bar Moses. Bar is the CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo, a data reliability company committed to accelerating the world's adoption of data by reducing data downtime. Uh, Monte Carlo is backed by Asan, GGV, and other top Silicon Valley investors, including the former chief data scientist at the US, DJ Patil. Uh, previously, Barra was the Vice President of Customer Operation at the customer success company Gainsai, where she half scaled the company 10 times in revenue and among other functions. She also built the whole uh, data analytics team from scratch at Gainsai. Prior to that, she was a management consultant at Bain & Company and a research assistant at the statistics department at Stanford. She also served in the Israel Air Force as a commander of an intelligent data analyst unit and graduated from Stanford with a BS in math and uh, computational science. So yeah, Bar, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, great to be here. Yeah, so I, I wanna start our conversation uh, discussing a little bit about your upbringing. I saw that you were originally from Israel and uh, at some point, like uh, we already talked about, like, you, you serve as a commander of the uh, data analytics unit at the Air Force. So can you just share a bit about your background and uh, your time in the military? Yeah, definitely. I was born and raised in Israel, and I was actually, I grew up on a university campus in Israel. So my dad was a physics professor, or is a physics professor. My mom is a meditation and dance teacher. And so growing up very early, kind of had both of those sort of domains in my life. And actually growing up, I used to go to my dad's lab, and I created my own lab where I sort of grew things and blew things up. So experimentation was something that I really enjoyed as a kid. Later on, actually in high school at uh, age 16, I joined the Israeli Red Cross, basically served as kind of a EMT uh, activities. And so that was one of the first sort of really experiences that really shaped me uh, growing up, literally saving lives. That was very meaningful. Later on, as I mentioned, like after high school, joined the Israeli Air Force. So, you know, as a commander of a unit, can't tell you too much about that time, but learned a lot about grit camaraderie, uh, diligence, data downtime, and many other great things. After that, actually traveled in South America for about 10 months or so, almost a year. It's a great, you know, one of the best periods of, of time in my life. And shortly after that, actually decided to, to go to Stanford um, to study math and statistics. So that's just a little bit about kind of the, the journey that led me to the United States. That sounds fantastic that you, you kind of have such a you know, wonderful and diverse experience such early in your development of your childhood. So you mentioned you went to Stanford to study math and computational science. Can you just share a little bit about your overall experience at Stanford? You know, what are some of the, your favorite classes? What are your favorite activities? And overall, like, what, what are some of the things that you learned from attending such a, you know, world-class uh, university like that? 
Yeah. So uh, I definitely didn't know what to expect because I've never been to Stanford before. I came, uh, you know, with um, sort of a lot of curiosity and actually loved my time there. Uh, it was a very, very immersive experience. I remember feeling like it was sort of like Disneyland, by, but for my brain. Like there were, you know, I felt like I entered a world where there were all these different um, kind of stations or roller coasters or, you know, sort of different things that you could do. And each of them was a different kind of stimulation and different kind of fun activity for your brain, basically. And I love that, really, really love that. I took a lot of theoretical math classes, which I enjoyed, uh, but my favorite class was actually a class called Mathematics where we basically had to come up with our own magic trick based on a mathematical concept or algorithm. So I came up with something um, in, in uh, like a card trick. And then, you know, everyone at the class kind of showed sort of the different tricks that they came up with. And I just, you know, I just love that. Also with sort of a favorite professor of mine, Percy Diaconis. So that was some, some great memories and some lifelong friendships made at Stanford. I also participated in a radio show. So I have a lot of respect for what you're doing on this podcast. And then after that, I actually worked at a statistics department. Um, I thought that I was going to stay in academia, like my dad. Worked a lot on Monte Carlo simulations, actually. Yeah, can you just uh, explain Monte Carlo simulation for people who are not familiar with it? Yeah, definitely. Monte Carlo simulation is a way to approximate values. I can actually share a great article after this that explains more about what we do. But there's very many different applications for it. Some of them are in financial institutions. So if you've worked in finance, definitely lots of folks are aware of that. Many different fun applications, including for us at Monte Carlo as well. Fantastic. Yeah, and definitely like put that in the show notes so people can, um, you know, get a chance to explore more, more of that. So did you come to Stanford with the idea of like, you're going to study math? Did you like already kind of like know that this is sort of, sort of the subject you want to pursue? Or, you know, like I, I saw that you also studied computer science. What about like the combination of math and CS that attracted you? Yeah, actually, you know, uh, when I started at Stanford, I actually didn't know that I was going to, to study that. I actually thought that I was going to do something else. You know, I, I wish I had a good answer for that. I don't, I don't think I have. Um, <laughs> I think I was just attracted by, you know, sort of the, beauty that exists in solving kind of a, you know, solving a really difficult math problem after you've like banged your head against the wall for many days and, you know, is able to, there's, there's just some, some beauty in being able to have like a pen and paper and arrive at sort of something that you didn't start with from the beginning, that process of creation, I, I really enjoyed. So yeah, you know, I think I, I, I mean, the great thing about Stanford was that I could try out a bunch of different classes and just really, really enjoyed sort of the math and CS and stats classes that I took. Awesome. After graduating from Stanford, your first job out of college was as a management consultant role at Bain & Company in the San Francisco office, where you spent two and a half years advising tech companies on strategy and merger and acquisition initiatives. So what were some of the big career lessons that you learned from being a management consultant? A few things from my time at Bing. One, it was actually, it was my first job out of school. And I love the people at Bing. They were amazing. And, you know, I, I knew I'd have a lot of fun working with them. And I think that set the tone for the rest of my career. Work with people you love. Work with people that you want to see every day. And so that was actually one of the biggest, maybe the most important career lesson that, that I learned. You know, I set, the second was I love the variety of being a management consultant. So one day I'd work with a semiconductor company. The next day it would be a retail company or sorry, the next month, a retail company. And then, you know, after a quarter, I'd be working with a hedge fund, for example. The common thread for all of them was that they all needed data and data science to improve their operations and strategy. 
And so I also learned for myself that I really love that. I spent a lot of time in R. Actually, I'm still an R fan. And that part was always something that I enjoyed very much. And so I knew that I wanted to keep that in my career going forward. So probably those two things, great people and working with data. Mm, I see. And is there any downside about, you know, like sort of the schedule of, you know, being in in consulting roles? I'm, I'm just curious to hear insider perspective on that. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the job is definitely not for everyone. If you don't like variety, that's definitely something that, you know, if, if you really sort of know that you want to focus on, you know, the automobile industry, or you, you know, you love medicine, and you just want to do biotech, right? And you just want to focus on, on that. There's some, you know, opportunities to do it as well. Uh, but I think sort of the, the big benefit, at least for kind of an early grad, is to have the ability to do that. That exposure to diverse kinds and diverse functional roles that really kind of like allows you to like identify, you know, what is your strength, what's your weakness, and what are you really being drawn into? And it seems for you, it's like really that in any role that requires an analytical skill and, and really digging into data analysis, right? Yeah, I don't know if there's a downside, but it just, um, you know, kind of a fit with what, who you want to be in the world and what you want to do. So after Ben, you spend the next three and a half years at Gainsai, which offer an enterprise solution for customer success and product teams. And at Gainsai, you have a build and scale a global team that cover you know, various functions, such as uh, business operation, customer success, professional services, among others. Uh, well, well, so first of all, like, what attracted you to join Gainsai in the first place? And, um, you know, and secondly, like, what are some of the unique challenges of scaling a global team? So I think going back to the thread of sort of what, you know, got me excited earlier in my career was sort of the people that I'd work with. And so at Gainsight, I met a group of folks who I was extremely excited about working with, who I thought very highly of, and that was probably the first kind of component. I think the second was Gainsight was creating an entirely new category, which is a customer success category, and actually bringing a lot of sort of quantitative um, background and quantitative people to that category kind of like a decade or two ago, customer success was very much relationship driven. Today, there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of turn analysis and modeling and cohort uh, analysis and so many more things that we could do to really understand customer success better. And so I was very excited about actually helping to create that category. You know, when I joined, it wasn't really clear what customer success is, but it was very clear to me that it was going to be huge, like you could tell, right? And so I loved my time there. I was VP customer operations and I led a number of different teams, like you mentioned. One of them was actually a team called Gainsight on Gainsight, short for Gong. We basically sort of ran an incubator internally to test out a lot of ideas in data and a lot of ideas with sort of customer or our sort of data to understand what, you know, what we want to work with. And so learned a lot from there and was fortunate to work with an amazing team, you know, spans across both the U.S. as well as India. And actually, interestingly, we had some of the challenges of scaling that you're fa- that we're facing today with a global pandemic. So right. for example, with everyone virtual, how do you actually create culture and how do you actually bring people together? And so we had all of our meetings on Zoom back then already. You know, we had sort of bring your own drinks, virtual happy hours back then. So we did a lot of those things that, you know, sort of adopted uh, today as well at Monte Carlo and also even with our customers actually. So, you know, definitely learned how hard it is to scale company. So it's really important to do it uh, with people that you appreciate and also work on a problem that you really care about and that you kind of can't see the world without. Mm, yeah, thanks a lot for kind of sharing those some of the key takeaways on the importance of customer success and sort of some of the lessons you learn when working with, with diverse team from, from different countries. 
as the customer success VP of operation at Gensai, you had the privilege to work with like hundreds of companies that were you know, in the leading industry in the approach to customer data and uh, de- deriving insights to improve business outcome. And at the same time, you also observed like a lot of these companies were actually falling short of becoming data-driven due to, to the problem of data downtime, which you wrote a whole blog post about this called the rise of data downtime um, last year. So yeah, can, can you unpack this notion of data downtime for, for the uninitiated? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned that at Gainsight, I led a team uh, internally that was responsible for our data. And one thing that sort of was a reality for me was that there's a reality for anyone working at data is that oftentimes data would break. But many times we would be the last people to know about it. We were going to hear about it from our CEO who would look at a report and find out that the numbers are wrong. Or we would look at a, it would be a customer that suddenly says, hey, like, you know, something here, the data doesn't look fresh, something's not working. And that was really frustrating. It was really, honestly, like, yeah, very frustrating experience. Why are we always the last to know about data breaking? And then in my experience working with companies sort of over the last decade or so, I kind of noticed this trend that you mentioned where on the one hand, you know, companies sort of, you know, suddenly decide that they need to become data driven. So they wake up one day and there's this like mad rush to become data driven and they hire lots of data scientists and data engineers and you know, invest a lot of that and, you know, really decide that they want to do it. But then there's this opposite trend where they suddenly get stuck on some of the fundamentals, like what data should we use? Where is that data? Can Mm -hmm. we trust that data? Right? Like really fundamental questions that we should be able to answer. And when they actually start to use the data, they see, you know, all this like broken data pipelines, wonky dashboards, and the impact of that is tremendous. So, you know, I've talked to CEOs who said that they're like, they used to or the CEO in particular told me that he used to like walk around the office and put sticky notes on dashboards saying, this is wrong. There's a mistake here, bad report, right? Like literally across the office and kind of like these big monitors that they had, right? Or other examples where this is detrimental, where, you know, companies actually lost customers because the data was wrong, the data in their product. And so I think that this problem of sort of what I call data downtime, the definition of which is, moments of time when data is missing, inaccurate, or otherwise erroneous, really affects all companies today, all data-driven companies, regardless of industry. But I think it doesn't kind of get the diligence that it deserves, which is why I've given it the name of data downtime. And actually, you know, you might be curious, where does the name come from? It -hmm. comes as a corollary to application downtime. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you think about this a couple of decades ago, maybe 25 years ago, if a company's website went down, Nobody cared about that because no one was looking at the website. So who cares, <laughs> right? But today, that's a ridiculous concept. And we have, you know, five nines and we meticulously measure application downtime. And I think the same thing is happening to data. So today, we can sort of have our data wrong in some reports, some pipelines, you know, but kind of as we become better users and democratize data, we actually need to measure data downtime and get really good about it. You know, I always think about this kind of a metaphor of how, if you think about how our data infrastructure works today, think about kind of as a metaphor for the car factory. So imagine that you were like, you know, running and you would start with like all these, you know, raw sources, sand, glass, metal, whatever it is, you'd bring it all in. And then in your factory, you probably have like 10 or 15 different stages where you take that raw material and you, you know, collect it, you aggregate it, you transform it, you do all these things. And in the end, you get a car and then you take the car to a test drive. And then at 60 miles per hour, you realize that like the windows are like 
you know, all broken and nothing and like, you know, the car blows up, right? What a terrible way to, to learn about a mistake that happened somewhere upstream, right? Mm-hmm. I think the way that we're managing our data infrastructure is exactly the same way. We have all this great infrastructure. We take all the sort of data in. There's lots of transformations, a lot of things happening. And then when do we learn when there's a problem? When someone at the end tells us that like there's something wrong in the report. How does that make sense? And so really inspired by wanting to solve that problem, that's sort of where the concept of data downtime came from. Yeah, th- thanks for sharing that great analogy. And it seems like this inspiration, a lot of things happening in, in, in software, you know, a couple of years ago, I can, some of the lessons can, can be applied to the current data landscape at the moment. Uh, and in the key here, as like you already mentioned, try to fix from earlier in the development process instead of waiting until like the customer test drive it, <laughs> then fixing the problem. By then it's going to be a huge cost and a lot of liability. Testing and monitoring, which is super standard from software engineering, right? Mm-hmm. And it's still, we're in its uh, infancy in data. Your following blog post to that one is called Closing the Data Downtime Gap. And in that one, you describe the four main steps in the data reliability maturity curve, reactive, proactive, automated, and scalable. Yeah, so could you mind just quickly going over these different stages in a company uh, data reliability journey? Yeah, definitely. These sort of four stages are kind of based on observations from my conversations with sort of hundreds of data teams and just observing sort of this natural evolution of what data teams tend to do. So I think at the beginning, you know, sort of at the early stages of a company, maybe you just have a data warehouse and a BI solution or something like that. But then suddenly as you sort of start adding, maybe you have a data lake, maybe you have, you know, more pipelines, uh, maybe you have a few different data warehouses and you start actually having people looking at your data. That's when sort of you kind of enter a stage where there's often a lot of firefighting and crises, meaning you typically find about problems only after someone tells you about that. And that's part of the reactive phase. You know, that's you really see lots of broken data pipelines and and sort of wrong dashboards. Um, And then comes a period of time in the company's lives where you actually realize that you need to start fixing it. And so that's where you enter kind of the proactive stage. And most often, actually, interesting, the first thing that people do is start having manual tracking and detection of problems. And by manual, I mean, you literally have people looking, staring at like Looker dashboards or Tableau dashboards and asking themselves, are the number accurate here? Or they have like an Excel sheet that they use to track schema or, you know, sort of key definitions of the most important KPIs. That's sort of in the kind of proactive stage. The second, or sorry, the third is the automated phase when you realize that you actually need a programmatic way to enforce this, to start actually having um, checks. This could be, you know, something like every data engineer needs to add tests for null values for every pipeline that they create, just as an example. Um, So you start introducing some automated ways, start enforcing sort of data quality checks uh, in a more automated way so that you rely on people in a less substantial sense. And then finally, the fourth stage, which very, very few companies get to, is what I would call a scalable stage, where you actually have substantial and embedded coverage, where you actually get full data reliability. And that can include anomaly detection, all the way from your raw data uh, to your key tables to key reports that are being used. You have probably tooling that allows actually every job, every table, every data asset to be easily monitored and tracked across sort of these five key pillars of data observability, which I assume we'll get to later, but really sort of starting to think through how do you do this in a scalable way? Netflix has a, has a, good, a few good articles, um, which I can share too, about what they've built 
especially around um, anomaly detection and a few other solutions. So, you know, I think that's where, where we're going, where the industry is headed. We're not quite there yet. Just from a conversation with like, the leaders in different companies, like what is the most common stage that the, the company is in? Just curious. Yeah, so I did, you know, last time I did a survey was a short while back when I could actually see people and survey them. So I can pull the numbers for you from exactly from that survey. It's been a while since I could actually survey people. But the large majority of people are really actually either in the reactive or proactive stage. You know, scalable is really sort of rare and automated is incredibly hard. So I would say we're just at the beginning of our journeys here, either in stage one or two. Awesome. So yeah, definitely very early in. Right now, I guess you have to educate people about these, some of these problems first. And by, by being aware of some of these issues, they, they start like looking for solutions, right? So you mentioned like you know, all these four different stages and then the scalable stage, you can use tooling to you know, address a lot of these issues. Since January of 2019, you have been the co-founder and CEO of Monte Carlo, whose mission is to accelerate the world's adoption of data by reducing data data. So yeah, can you just share the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned, when I was at Gainsight, you know, I experienced the problem of data downtime firsthand. And so I actually created um, sort of like hacked together kind of a bare bones way to sort of manage this, even then sort of realized that it was a problem. And then, you know, when I left Gainsight, I talked to sort of hundreds of data leaders to understand sort of what's top of mind for them. Like, what's the biggest thing that's keeping you up at night? And data downtime just came up again and again. And it came up with small startups that, or, you know, companies are just getting started with becoming uh, data-driven. And it came up with very large organizations like Uber and Facebook and Google that actually built kind of solutions to start thinking about how to address this. And actually, you know, I reached out to many people sort of even just cold calling them to ask them, like, what's top of mind for you? And still this pain sort of came up again and again. And, you know, I was sort of realizing that, you know, every other industry or, or many other industries, let's take software engineering, for example, has a way to manage something like this, right? Like there are solutions like New Relic and Datadog and AppDynamics that helps you understand the health or create observability into the health of a specific or of a system, right? But for some reason in data, that doesn't exist. And that was very, you know, confusing. Like why are data teams still in the stone age, right? Why, why are data teams flying blind while, um, you know, this is actually a solved problem in another industry. And so inspired by a desire to make data teams' lives easier and bring on concepts from software engineering that are, you know, tested, tried, and proven, started Monte Carlo to, to build exactly that. I and mean, we worked very early with design partners to help them solve this problem, sort of bring reliability and, and trust and accuracy to their data. And we're very, very happy with the early traction and results that we got that we, you know, decided to, to go all in and start Monte Carlo. And you also have a co-founder, right? So can you share a little bit about how, you know, how you found a co-founder and what decision you make to choose a co-founder to work on like this type of problem? Yeah, definitely. So my co-founder's name is Lior, and he's actually a second time co-founder. So he founded a company previously in the security space called Sukasa. They were acquired in 2016 by a company called Barracuda Networks. He served as SVP engineering there and dealt a lot with AI and ML for fraud detection and for phishing, actually. And, you know, when I started working on this problem, I actually met with a number of different founders and was considered, was considering, you know, kind of going back to what I mentioned, like people that I'd really want to work with and trust and who sort of are aligned with me on, on my vision for, you know, building a meaningful company. And actually Lior, uh, who I met through, he's actually, I'm married to him. And so uh, when we found each other through that, 
And, you know, when he saw what I was working, as I was working on, he was very excited about that. And so we started working together on this. Yeah. And, and they're having a lot of fun today. That, that sounds like a great story. Let's dig a little deeper into a few technical problems that Monte Carlo is, is solving. Closely related to the data diagram problem is the concept of data observability, which is an organization's ability to understand the health of the data in the system entirely. And you have written before about sort of the five pillars of strong data observability. So would you mind explaining these pillars in, in more detail? Yeah, so maybe going back to the analogy about application downtime and data downtime. So if you think about application downtime and actually observability in software engineering, applications can you know, break for millions of different reasons, right? There's could be so many root causes for why an application will get, go down. However, there's a coherent set of metrics and ways for us to measure and monitor those applications to make sure that we have observability or kind of you know, a view into the health of those systems. And so, you know, any software engineer that respects itself has some way to measure performance and CPU and latency and many other ways to understand the health of their systems. Now, when we started this journey, we thought that there should be the same set of standards applied to data. In a similar way, data can break for many different reasons. It could be many different causes for why data would be wrong but there should be a coherent set of metrics that we agree on that we need to, to look at, to monitor, to instrument, to measure, and to analyze in order to understand the health of our data. And so we came up with these five pillars, uh, what we call the five pillars of data observability. I'll explain each of them. So the first is freshness, which is basically a set of metrics around how up-to-date is your data? When was it last refreshed? How often does it get refreshed? And is it sort of refreshing at a cadence that you'd expect? The second is distribution, which is kind of a name that we give to a whole set of metrics at the field level. So that's really looking at the distribution of the field itself, looking at the uniqueness rate, at the negative value rate, at the null value rate, really sort of looking at the data um, and, and its ranges and, and its behavior. The third is volume, so more of the completeness of your data tables. It could be road count, byte count, file size, et cetera. The fourth is schema, so understanding, you know, having sort of an audit log of who makes changes to your data and when, right? Sounds simple, but actually very hard to do well. And then fifth is lineage, right? Because whenever one of these four pillars, there's a problem with them, the first question is, where is this problem and what's dependent on this, right? Mm -hmm. And so lineage helps us understand what's the impact downstream, what's the root cause upstream, et cetera. And I believe that if you actually, you know, think about these five pillars together and measure them, this will give you the confidence and visibility into the health of your data and create a holistic view of data observability. Mm, I see. The key thing that we really talk about is like they are interconnected, right? Like because you need to measure the freshness and, and the volume in order to like perform upstream tasks, of, you know, data lineage and and so it seems like no matter what, by looking at these five pillars, it's going to give you the sort of overall picture and understanding the health of your system. Data governance is another priority for many of Monte Carlo customers. And this term refers to the data management practices to protect user data. And so your blog post, What We Got Wrong About Data Governance, uh, discussed the rise of data catalogs as a powerful tool for data governance. You know, you also outlined the three categories of data catalog solutions that data teams are adopting. Yeah, so can you unpack this post for the listeners? Yeah, so I think, you know, starting with data governance, that's like a big word, right, that people like to throw around. <laughs> but what does it actually mean or why do you need it? I think it helps you 
answer some fundamental questions. For example, where can I find this data? What does this data mean? Where does this data come from? Can I trust this data? Where is the most important data for us? In order to be able to answer these questions, you need to have some catalog or some way to understand the answers. And so in my mind, that's actually the function of a data, data catalog first and foremost. Now, how do you actually implement that? We've seen companies do sort of three main things. One, they can build in-house. So Airbnb, for example, homegrown data catalog. Obviously that takes you know, a certain investment and requirement specification, et cetera, to actually build that in-house. Second option is to have a third party or a vendor provided. Some of the vendors out there today, the, the bigger ones include Alation and Informatica, for example. And, you know, that's sort of the, the build versus buy question. And then the third is sort of an, an open source, right? So we see folks use Apache Atlas, Amundsen, Lyft open sourced. So those are sort of the, the three main kind of options that, that people pursue. Honestly, lots of companies have a little bit of both that we're saying, you know, I think, I think companies are still figuring out what their approach is to, to data catalogs. I will say that one of the things that I've learned is that perhaps the most important part of your data catalog is actually having data observability. Because if, even if you know where your data is, if you don't know if you can trust it, it's really kind of a necessary but not sufficient information to allow your users to explore that data. So I think thinking about data catalogs and data reliability sort of going hand in hand, one of the first things that you really want to consider if you're starting to think about this for your company. Yeah, just kind of go back to that part about build versus buy, right? What are some of the criteria that you suggest companies to evaluate, you know, to make the decision whether they should be in-house or whether they should utilize open source or they should buy like a third party? And obviously, like, like you mentioned, you know, do you have to satisfy the five pillars of observability? But I, I guess less from that angle, but more from, from a leadership and management and, you know, buy-in from the boss. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would say that the build versus buy question is very much a DNA kind of thing. Like there are companies that, you know, I see like to build and then there are companies that, that like to buy. So in a, in a way, there's also kind of a precedent of, you know, what have you done to date? It's not that easy to move from, from one to another, though I've seen companies do it. You know, I, th- I think it comes down to consideration of what's important for you. Do you want this set of team or the set of people to invest in building a data catalog or, um, you know, another sort of in-house solution? Or would you rather have these people work on something that's revenue generating for your organization? If the data catalog is critical to your ability to generate revenue and it's sort of strategic to your business, then perhaps it's a good decision to, to build in-house. Obviously, you can um, customize more. It can be more specific to your needs. You know, you can control sort of the time and the spec, but it's a very significant investment. So I don't think there's a right or wrong. There's sort of kind of trade-offs to, to each and depends a little bit about the company and their needs. Thanks for sharing that insight. Data mesh is another topic that uh, I could love to discuss. So this term refers to a type of data platform architecture that embraced the ubiquity of data in the enterprise by leveraging a domain-oriented self-serve design. So what are some of the benefits of data mesh compared to traditional data architectures and how can you know companies start to adopt it? 
Data mesh, the term, was first coined by Zamak, popularized by Zamak Tagani at ThoughtWorks. And I think a lot of the concepts there go back to a lot of things that we talked on this on this call today, which is, you know, software engineering has been around for way longer. We are catching up in data. And so we can apply some of the concept that we've developed in software engineering to the data space. And so I love sort of the idea of the data mesh because it's, it's pretty simple. And that, I think that's why it's genius. The idea of a data mesh basically kind of takes from software engineering the concept of, you know, distributed microservice architecture and applies that to data. And so, you know, in a monolith kind of scenario where you have consumption and storage and transformation and output of data all in one place, basically sort of in a, you know, in a central data lake, that's because sort of one approach. In a data mesh, you actually have, you know, domain-oriented architecture that supports a different model where it's domain-specific data consumers. And so it's a distributed model where you're really thinking about data as a product where every domain handles their own pipelines. Um, so it's a very different concept from what companies have been operating so far. Uh, we are seeing more companies to this, which I think is, is the right one to move towards, but the transition is hard, right? But what are some of the things that could help companies do it? There's sort of kind of a number of different things or maybe kind of I'll identify three or four key pillars that Zamak outlines for a data mesh. One, as I mentioned, is actually domain-oriented data owners. The second is self-serve functionality. So moving away from a centralized model um, for data and actually making, making it easy for data owners to manage and own their own data. And that requires different tooling than what we have today. Third is actually having interoperability, but also standardization of communications around data. And that means we need to standardize on formatting of data, discoverability, metadata, definitions, all those things. Actually, we're going to need to standardize on them in order to enable this self-serve uh, domain-oriented uh, model. And then the fourth kind of key pillar or, or sort of highlight that I'll mention is actually data observability. I think it's a, data observability is a very important part of, of a data mesh. Some examples of that, you know, Zamak specifies is, you know, having data product versioning, um, looking at schema, catalog, which we mentioned before, lineage, you know, data product monitoring, alerting and logging, data quality metrics. All of these are kind of attributes that are part of data observability, but really um, are required in, in order to enable a data mesh in your organization. Just take a bit deeper on that notion of domain-oriented architecture. When you say domain-oriented, you mean each of the company function can go to this architecture and get their own data, right? Like say, if I'm a, from an engineer, so I want to get my you know, application services. If you're like a sales, you can go in there and, and collect customer data. If you're like marketing, you can go then and collect, you know, page view or stuff like that. Is that sort of the idea that you talk about? Yeah. So basically the idea is like, you can think of different teams sort of owning their data as their product. And so that means that they basically have you know, kind of their own, uh, basically each domain is responsible for leveraging components that are domain agnostic in order to run their ETL pipelines right. and, you know, the specific sort of needs that they have so that they have all the support that they need from the centralized platform, but they also have the autonomy to run their own process. And you're right, maybe if you're running a specific uh, type of data for sales, for example, you need to have different, you know, different transformations or, you know, different aggregations of the data for the purpose of sales as an example. 
I see. And I, I guess like related to that point, one potential challenge can be like some of these non-technical teams, right? For example, marketing or sales, it might be a, a steep learning curve for them to like <laughs> write their own ETL. So there must be some sort of interface that allow those, those people to collect the data faster, more efficient, right? What are your thoughts on, on that? How can, you know, data mesh architecture being engineered in a way that, you know, even those domains can reach the data in the best way? Yeah, definitely. So I think one thing is that more and more people in the organization are increasing their literacy of data. So actually there are, you know, data organizations that sort of score their teams, you know, whether it's sales, marketing, data, science, data analytics, or others on, you know, specific capabilities, specific languages, and seeing what is your literacy today and where do you want to be by the end of the year and actually providing training for their teams uh, to get more familiar and literate with data, which I think that is one you know, key area of actually enabling this. Honestly, I think that's, that's probably the strongest thing that we can do. I think in today's world, everyone is a data consumer. Everyone needs to, everyone in the organization needs to be able to make decisions based on data. So we all need to, to step up. And you know, I'm not saying that we're all gonna you know, run our own custom uh, pipelines tomorrow, but you know, I think we can definitely think about you know, what's, what's sort of our goal. What's my team's goal for this year to become a better data-driven user? I love that suggestion to become more data literate. Yeah, so that actually lends itself pretty well to my next question. I guess like stepping away a little bit from a technical perspective, I want to probe your thoughts on establishing a culture for data organizations. And so in a post co-written with Baka Sena on measuring the value of data organization, you propose like a framework that looks at the business function and the nature of the work in order to score the impact and allocate the uh, return on investment of the data team. I guess, like, what are the, the premise and, and the process behind designing this framework? So the reason Barca and I got together to write this or to kind of co-create this was, you know, I, we got that question a lot, you know, how I'm, this is, I'm running a data organization or I'm part of a data organization. How do I prove my value? You know, so I created that pipeline. Okay. How did I, how did I make an impact on the business? And I think actually in these days in sort of in COVID days, when a lot of companies are doing cost cutting, or thinking about that, it's even more important to think about what is the value of your organization. And, you know, talking about sort of other organizations that have better ways to, or sort of have ways to measure the value, sales, for example, it's very clear, right? It's, it's very tangible. Um, marketing as a function has done a lot of work in the last few decades to quantify the value of marketing. In data, I would say we still have to develop that. And so this was sort of a kind of first draft or proposal to help data teams think about how to measure or um, sort of put some sort of quantitative value around their impact. And so it's basically, it, it's actually a pretty simple two by two framework that allows you to identify tangible value to the contribution. On the one hand, you look at the specific function of an organization that could include customer success, sales, marketing, engineering, product, et cetera. And on the other hand, how is data contributing to those functions? Whether it's increasing the ROI of their operational initiatives, whether it's helping them drive new strategic initiatives. You know, just to give an example that we provided in the blog was from marketing team, you know, data, the data organization can help, you know, run, build a new experimentation platform or develop a recommendation system um, or identify sort of new user behavior that's leading to a new product or a new kind of marketing idea. And so there's basically kind of these five areas where the data team can help a specific function or can bring value to it. And so 
in this framework, we propose a way where you can actually take all of the initiatives that you have and plot it on this two by two um, and use that to calculate how you're actually helping each of the organization, each of the, the teams in your organization. And I will say in that sort of the best organizations, data team actually help each of these functions and each of these areas. So really kind of you can see the two by two pretty populated. Yeah. And I think that's really useful in terms of like the impact that the data team actually make for the whole organization, right? A lot of companies treating data as like a support function, as like, you know, they're just there to like provide needs when, you know, like my team try to verify like a statement. But I guess like with this framework, you can actually quantify like the impact and the RI, like you mentioned, like treating data as first-class citizen, as in, you know, they actually drive business initiative to actually attract more customers. They actually, you know, allow you to build better products. So I think it's, it's a very, you know, <laughs> a very data-driven way to raise the respect for data teams higher. In another post co-written with Atul Gupte pretty recently on building a data platform, you share five practices for designing a platform that maximizes the value and impact of data inside an organization. Uh, yeah, can you just, you know, provide like, you know, a brief summary of these practices? Maybe I'll start actually with the why, like why build a data platform? Why on earth would you want to build a data platform? <laughs> so there's, there's definitely a few you know, value points that I think are worth mentioning. You know, one, it can help you actually drive your sort of product roadmap, help actually organizations move from what you mentioned before, being a support organization to actually being a proactive organization that helps drive the business forward, not just a reactive support function. And so for if you kind of have a strong data platform, you can you know, help guide sales efforts by giving them sort of insights on where to focus your efforts based on how um, you know, prospects are responding or you sort of your, your product roadmap with new findings. You can improve the customer experience by identifying where are the you know, pain points that you have in your customer service organization, for example. And you can de-risk you know, some things for your company by standardizing on data governance and compliance measures you know, for GDPR and CCPA and, and all that. And so that's kind of, you know, sort of the, the why for data platform. Now, how to do it, I will say it's hard as well, but some sort of things that, you know, uh, we've seen um, work or can help. One is, and this is maybe kind of tying back to your previous question about the blog post with Varka, align your data platform or your product's goals with the goals or the business. Right. Um, if you're building a data platform just for the sake of it, but it's unclear how it's actually tying to the company's business, that's a problem. You need to align those two. Second, you know, gain sort of feedback and buy-in from the right stakeholders. I mentioned I work before in customer success. I think that you know, taking on sort of the customer success mindset when you're doing that and being customer first, regardless of who your customers are for the data platform, you know, more sort of along those lines is really prioritize kind of sustainability of the solution that you're building. Obviously, you need to have some quick wins in order to, you know, show value, enable your users, whether they are, you know, data literate or less so, you still need to show value pretty quickly. But, you know, building with sort of a, the long-term growth in mind creates sort of a more solid foundation. And then maybe finally, I'll say, kind of going back to our question from before, know when to build versus buy, right? Perhaps you want to build parts of it and augment that with sort of vendors in addition, or, or perhaps it makes sense for for you to, to build internally. It really depends on the priorities of your company. Thanks a lot for sharing that. And I'd be sure to put the, the blog post in the show notes so people can have a chance to, you know, learn about some of these really great practices and, you know, adopt them to face the problem of building data products and designing a platform. Let's take off your data hat and put on your father hat. So 
what are some of the major challenges that you encounter to get the first cohort of customers for Monte Carlo? So when we set out to build Monte Carlo, we realized that we are building a new category, this category of data reliability solutions, which is a very big and broad problem with a broad set of issues and capabilities. And we found that in sort of the early days, and for us today as well, focus really matters, right? You're a small team, you can't do everything, you need to figure out what are you doing and how quickly you can do it. And so there are two things that we focus on. One is breaking the problem into very specific pain points resonates with people. So, you know, if it's a data analyst, specifically, what is their problem? Their problem is that, you know, they are looking at reports that are wrong, right? If you're talking to a data engineer, the very specific problem that they have is that the job was completed, but the data is all null values and they had no idea about that, right? A very specific problem. You know, if you're a chief data officer, the problem is that you can't, you know, you reporting to about the numbers tomorrow and you're not sure they're right. Right? So identifying very specific pain points, like taking this problem and kind of breaking it down into the personas and the specific pain that they feel. Mm-hmm. And then the second is pushing to release very quickly. We were fortunate to have some great design partners. And so we built our product with our early customers. So we basically, you know, our goal was to just basically get something in their hands kind of as fast as humanly possible and then iterate with them on solving this specific pain points. That was our strategy for how to find these early customers, sort of early adopters who are passionate about this, solving this problem too. They need to get your vision and they need to want to be a part of that movement. And you, you mentioned like, try to create these personas. So your customer, do they follow along a certain persona? Like what, what do you see like, are your customer mainly like cheap data officer or are they more like data analyst? And I'm just curious, how do you actually break that down? Yeah. Yeah. So the interesting thing about data downtime is that when data downtime happens, everyone is involved in it, <laughs> right? It can start from, you know, the upstream engineer that made a change somewhere. Maybe they made a change to the website um, and that resulted in, you know, something that the product manager for data didn't know about. And that resulted in the data engineer that was responsible for the pipeline, you know, that where there was a silent error and she or she didn't know about it. And that results in the data analyst who's looking at the wrong numbers or maybe the data scientist that now, you know, their model is, is inaccurate, all the way to sort of the business users that consume that data or their, the customers. So data downtime really spans the whole gamut <laughs> of these issues. This is really at Monte Carlo, we sort of think that in order to really solve the data downtime problem, we're going to have to address all of these personas. It's a type of problem that you, you know, you can't sort of separate it out. I will say that having sort of a data mesh and all these new architectures does actually make it easier. So I'm, I'm glad that the industry is moving in that direction in any case. Hiring is another critical responsibility of any early stage startup founder. What are some of the valuable lessons that you have learned to attract the right people who are excited about Monte Carlo's mission? So one of the things about sort of hiring an early stage is that I think there has to be very strong alignment between sort of expectations and what people are excited to do. And, you know, building a startup is hard, right? I'll be honest. It's you have to create something from nothing. And so on the one hand, it's difficult and you need people who get excited about that, who want to wake up in the morning and, you know, go after the next big challenge. And the flip side of that is that it's very, very rewarding. There's magic in sort of creating something like that. And so for us, when, when we're thinking about hiring, we're thinking about who gets excited about these challenges and wants to create magic. Those are the people that I think sort of thrive in in early stage startups. One of the ways for us to figure out kind of how to attract those people 
uh, we actually define our values very, very early on. I think we were maybe four or five people, maybe just four people actually, when we defined them. And those values helped us identify, you know, what kind of culture we want to build and what matters to us. One of the, the values that, you know, we talk a lot about is uh, measure in minutes. It basically says like, you know, if you, you know, only had 30 minutes to get this thing done, to ship that feature, to close this deal, to, to create that spec, like what would you do if you only had 30 minutes? And people start thinking differently about how to solve those problems. And so for us, sort of the unit of measurement, it's not in the years, it's not months, it's not weeks, it's literally minutes. And so, you know, by defining these values, we were able to sort of really figure out who are the people that would be excited for us. And, you know, I think, again, like the rewards are tremendous. You actually get to, to create the world that you see, right? I can't envision a world without, uh, you know, a data downtime solution and data reliability. And you need people who are excited to be part of that movement and who believe in that vision and in that world bigger than us. People who buy towards action. Yeah. Makes fast decision. I guess just really curious, like, you know, as, as a founder, what are some of the books or, you know, resources or mentors that you have? I, obviously, like, besides from the actual fact of convincing people that your, your vision is good, and also, like, that sort of psychological barrier. You always have to wake up every day and believe, I'm making a meaningful thing. So do you have any recommended favorite books, resources, or podcasts, or whatever things that, that keep you be more effective as, as a CEO and as a founder? Great question. I listened in the early days, so a lot of podcasts about how to start companies. And I actually, I spoke to about 50 or so founders in one month, actually, to ask them, why did you start your company? What inspired you to do that? For me, I get a lot of inspiration from, sort of from those people and from what they've built. Uh, I learned so much from that. You know, just a, a book that comes to mind. I don't know if, if it's specifically on that topic, but it's called The Biggest Bluff by Maria Konnikova. It's a book about poker, actually, and game theory and human psychology. And she talks a little bit about how life is like a game of poker. I actually think startups are like a game of poker. Making a difference in the world is a little bit like that, too. You know, just a book that I read recently and came to mind. I think like the, the idea of the book is, you know, in poker, you have to make a lot of decisions under uncertainty and even if you like make the greatest decision, you know, you, you calculate the hand in, in the best way, you drop it and you can still win because the probability of luck is high, right? I think like running startups like that, when you have high risk, high reward, and even if you like make the best decision ever, and you still have to like, detach the outcome and focus on, on that process. Yeah, I, I guess that thing was thanks for sharing that and, and bring that up. Finally, Monte Carlo has received uh, investment from well-known Silicon Valley venture capital firms such as GGV and Axel. What advice could you give for founders who are in the process of finding the right investor for the companies? So I think in startup, if you're lucky, this will be a five to 10 years journey, right? When we started and built this company, we were like, we're going all in on this. This is our game of poker. This is our hand. <laughs> and if we're lucky, it's going to be a long ride if we do well. And so taking that in mind, I think the people that you hire, the people that you partner, your customers with, and your investors are people who you want to, to they should be people who you want to work with, people who you can trust. And so, you know, when, when you're thinking about that, I always suggest sort of having the, the long-term perspective in mind. Specifically in the early days when, uh, you know, just getting started, what I thought was important was actually finding people who believed in us. You know, in the early days, really, that's kind of all you have, right? It's, it's the team. And some of our investors actually believed in me way more than I believed in myself. And that meant a lot, you know, really recommend sort of thinking about, you know, who's the right investor for you and who's the right investor for your company, a person who you can trust, who, you know, believes in the mission and believes in your ability to make it happen. 
Awesome. I think that's very fantastic advice. Yeah. So Bar, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on into the final closing segment. I'm going to just ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can just very uh, quick answers for the listeners. Number one, uh, name three people in the data universe whose work you admire. Snowflake, which just IPO'd this week. Huge company. You know, I admire a lot. I would say DJ Patil, who's an investor and also the former U.S. chief data scientist, uh, was doing a lot of work with data for good now in COVID-19 days. And then I would say our customers, every single one of them, will be publishing a blog post about them, but they are sort of the real pioneers of this movement. So I really admire them. Secondly, name one book that you could recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. Can I recommend The Biggest Bluff again? Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. That was a good book. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the aspiring data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? So I'll confess that I'm a, a new to Twitter. I just joined a few months ago, so I'm not yet a Twitter expert. But, you know, I would tweet something like, you know, excited for 2021. What are you doing about data downtime next year? Yeah, brilliant. I think that's, that's a great way to end our conversation. So, Yaba, I really enjoy our chat and learning about your background growing up in Israel, your time at Stanford, your work experience at Bain and, and Company at Gensai, and the journey of founding Monte Carlo, a very fascinating and technical chat about data downtime, data observability, data mesh, uh, data governance, and some of the best practices to build data platform and establishing the value of data culture within the organization. And uh, I'll be sure to include all the links, uh, you know, your blog post and Monte Carlo blog post onto the show notes so people can have a chance to dig deeper and enrich out if they want to learn more about the world of data reliability. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.